0: You are listening to Art Freaks. My name's Daniel Crosson. I'm an artist based in London. I'll be sitting down with a variety of creative people to find out why they make the things they make and what lessons they've learned along the way that will help you impact the world with your creativity. Today, we meet artist Guy J. Oliver. Based in Margate, Guy is best known for his video art, but explores various disciplines, including painting, collage, and performance art. In 2020, Guy was commissioned for the Jerwood FMV Awards to produce his major film, You Know Nothing of My Work, a multi-chapter musical exploring the dilemma of how we treat the art of disgraced, influential cultural icons. In 2021, Guy was nominated for the Jarman Award, which recognizes and supports innovative artist filmmakers. Guy's video work is funny, yet at times uncomfortable. It is dark, but also commendably vulnerable. Guy's art explores death, our shared cultural experiences and the ludicrousness of some aspects of our lives. In this episode, we talk about the thinking behind the video work and how his increasingly vulnerable and personal films are conceived. We also discuss Quench, a non profit gallery and project space situated in Margate. Run by Guy and his partner, artist Lindsay Mendick. This podcast was recorded just before the launch of Guy's latest show that took place last month at Quench. And the film that we discussed titled Badly Drawn Boys can currently be watched in full on the Quench Gallery website. This is Guy J. Oliver. You're a Londoner.
1: Sort of. You kind of know that end of town. It's like right in the far suburbs of North London.
0: Very end of the northern line.
1: Yeah. So it's more it's more it's more small town than metropolitan life you know
0: what was school like did you did you go to an all-boys school i did yeah me too do you regret that
1: i don't regret it i just didn't enjoy it very much
0: um why I, it was just quite um
1: quite an oppressive kind of vibe there it kind of had um allusions to being you know a top sort of Eton style um it was a state school. It was, is it? Was a, I guess you call it a grammar school, like a selective state school. I was never very happy there. Um, yeah, I later found out I have dyslexia, possibly ADHD. I know everyone has ADHD now, but <laughs> um, so I was always very slow. I was very, I was very bright, but I was um, kind of a bit slow at reading and writing. So I was, everyone thought I was lazy, and yeah, it was a bit of a, it was just a bit of a struggle, I suppose. And I was always a bit more creatively minded.
0: Um, a bit of a daydreamer.
1: Mm -hmm. So yeah, which, which I guess, you know, all makes sense.
0: The word I've heard you use about yourself is nerdy, because I think, um, you get into things and then follow them sort of, and think about them a lot. And I think a lot of sort of schooling is a a repeating process where you're sort of tested on how much you can remember. That really does is very difficult for people that that cannot concentrate on things that they're not very interested in. So you also had uh, a sort of major surgery on your spine. Was that in high school or in primary school?
1: Uh, high school. So it kind of dominated my teens, I suppose. My, um, my brother had the same condition called scoliosis. And um, yeah, it was with me, it was discovered when I was about 12 13 so for most of my time at secondary school i had to wear like a, a, a body brace it was like a plastic corset thing that was supposed to was supposed to kind of correct so as a, as you grow as an adolescent if you have that form of the condition um it just kind of goes a bit off course um as you're sort of ha- having your growth spurt um so i had to wear this thing all the time i had to sleep in it to wear it kind of all, all day pretty much to kind of hold me in place so it didn't kind of um deviate i had my 18th birthday in hospital but yeah it kind of dominated my my time at secondary school so it probably it's probably another reason why it was a bit miserable i'm kind of looking back at that time now as the subject of of a film project that i'm making because it sort of dominated our family's life and it wasn't just that there was a kind of weird run of, of, of like conditions or hospital um related issues for me and my two two other brothers that seemed to be the story of of, of our life for, for like for our adolescents it's called badly drawn boys and i'm kind of right deep in the middle of making it at meditating at the, at the moment I interviewed uh, most of my family members kind of about the memories of that time yeah just about how something like that becomes like a defining story um Mm. within a family but I suppose also it was um key to maybe a kind of formative experience for being a creative person because I thought I documented it when I was in hospital and I, I kind of made some work about it soon after so yeah it has this significance and it's interesting then to look back at it as this formative art experience
0: do you think that the well i'm assuming the difficulty in participating with all of the other boys at school encouraged that depth of thought for things because you were on the outskirts of things so you were very much observing Or do you think that's just generally in your nature as a person?
1: Uh, It's a good question. A bit of both, probably. I was never very sporty or or kind of active. I was always obsessed with films and TV for as long as I remember and music. But yeah, particularly during my teens, I became very, very obsessive about cinema in particular. You know, I used to collect movie magazines. I used to sort of like curate VHS tapes. I would try and sort of record a whole tape of like Cohen Brothers films recorded off the TV or something, or like Steve Martin films, or that'd be very, a, ta- a lot of my life revolved around doing things like that, scouring the TV guide to what movies were on.
0: and Like cataloging in a way, like cataloging things in a kind of um, making a library of things I would imagine to better understand them as well.
1: What you'd call archiving That's the word I was, Um.
0: yeah. (laughs) It just escaped me. Uh, Yeah, yeah. And
1: I suppose I'm a bit of a sort of collector hoarder, you know, tendencies like
0: that. I can't relate at all. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Yeah. A lot of your films are kind of going into depth about something that's like um, what other people might find are fleeting thoughts. For example, in the year everyone died, which is a film that you talk about, uh, celebrities that are all <laughs> that are all dying in a <laughs> 2016. You kind of catalogue it and you present it in a very kind of. So we started this year and it was pretty bad start to the year, and then it got worse, and all of these people, uh, all of these people died. For anyone obviously that hasn't seen it, it's set to a song that you've written and you're performing. Yourself and is talking about something very significant for everybody, obviously, and then also very significant in in art, and then very significant in this subject matter of 2016. And you present it in quite a funny way, and then plugged in there, you also have very personal uh, accounts of loss. What was it? What was it that drew drew you in initially to 2016? Was it the kind of quite obvious mass hysteria around? someone like david bowie or was it just this consistent thing in the news cycle where you're like this is getting a bit strange
1: i think a lot of people did notice it in real time but i, I remembered it straight away that um it was pretty much the first week of, the, of january david bowie died but then alan rickman died a few days later and it felt like whoa what's going on and uh and i guess it then and then it just didn't stop and it, then it was like oh my god and it, and it kept going i remember right through to christmas the other end of the year each day there was somebody including like george michael on christmas day which was yeah. seemed you know <laughs> weird in so many ways and yeah. Um, so yeah and, and like something you said before i quite like the fact that you can kind of instantly engage with it if you you know if you watch it you can i can basically have a conversation with somebody about it because it's something that most people would have had a thought about or there's definitely going to be somebody in there that um, you have an opinion about or that you remember or it particularly affected you or something like that but yeah this idea of creating this sprawling spoken word song poem thing that follows an odd logic of uh, basically cataloguing again archiving cataloguing pretty much everyone who was uh, mildly famous who died that year And it's done, you know, uh, you know, it goes through the year, but it also, it was also memorable for me because people I knew, uh, died and family members died. So it kind of, I do that a lot, um, with my work, finding, finding things in popular culture that punctuate my own life. Like for example, in the film I'm making at the moment about my family, so my brother, was in hospital he'd been hit by a car um in 1997 and uh it was the week that princess diana died so it's like always this sort of association with uh, him being in edgeway hospital and it was you know that sunday morning when um diana died so it's it's these things follow your life and they're, they're, one way or another the, the news cycle or things that happen um whether we like it or not, kind of t- say a story of our life or of our, of the time that we live in. And I get obsessed with that, obsessed with, you know, this overriding obsession with time essentially and death and how culture sort of gets formed over time, especially because as I'm getting older, you kind of become very aware of the, the time that passes and how, if you look back now to a time from your youth, how everything looks different on the TV and you you, you suddenly become in a a way you're not aware of it in real time. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Once enough time passes, the past takes shape. It sort of changes somehow or it solidifies into, there's an aesthetic that emerges that you realise is different to contemporary aesthetic.
0: And everyone says, it's better. It was better than when, you know, when we had whatever it's called chromatic whatever you know on vhs it's a better look yeah. it's like it's just it's yeah 4 by 3 better. Is a better aspect ratio <laughs> yeah. it might be better than um you know the the phone the phone aspect which is incredibly difficult to um make cinematic film for i'm i'm very interested in sort of i go through stages of being interested in uh synchronicity and like strange things that happen i'm wondering if you like have any sort of beliefs or, or sort of what those kind of beliefs might be about that that weirdness of things happening at the same time or pointing at mm. links between things do you ever s- sort of think oh there's something bigger at play or do you just think life is this kind of comedy of of uh coincidences and and, and chaos
1: yeah that's a good question um i think Partly why I was drawn to the idea of of making a film about it because it is, it is just a random collection of things that happen, but as if it's like a sort of scientific kind of examination that means something. Like it's absurd, really. Like it's all arbitrary just to define a year. You know, I know it's not because it's related to the rotation of the earth and things like that, but 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 we do use like a year as a measure of something important in terms of how we kind of define culture and and things like that
0: and and the end of the year with the fireworks and they say like oh well it's been a let's look back at the year and now it's completely going to be changed everything's going to be different now and then you wake up the next day slightly hungover and you're like yeah it's the same (laughs) but they present it in this way you know the media has this great way of like you know let's celebrate and uh look forward to this brand new start that we've got let's really make use of it and then you know some something really bad happens on the 2nd of january
1: <laughs> yeah exactly and it's um it's always so cruel that we're we're all hung over on that first day of the year as well so it's never going to be it's never going to feel really fresh and exciting yeah that time kind of just rolls on it's a sort of relentless thing but this idea of of trying to scientifically examine it somehow but also we, we always think that we oh shit time's passed and we could have Maybe if I'd done something differently, I could have slowed it down or, or something. I did something wrong that's made so much time pass. Just sliding um, doors. <laughs> but also the idea that you know, because passing of time is so disturbing, um, mm, especially imagine, the older you get. <laughs> yeah, you imagine there must be a way of of, of breaking um, breaking that, of hacking that uh, passage.
0: Have you seen that guy who? like he's obsessed. He's like a Silicon Valley guy and he's obsessed with like living for as long as possible. And he takes like something like 120 um, tablets in the morning and (laughs) he sleeps like the optimum amount of time and exercises the optimum amount of time. And he's like reversed his biometric body clock to like the age of somebody who's 18 and he's in his (laughs) thirties, but he looks really strange I, have you seen this guy
1: I, I haven't but i know there's a whole kind of um uh, there's a whole group of people who are into ca- calorie restriction um theory that you know scientists have worked out that if you, if you if you starve mice to the right um measurements you you can you can kind of like triple their lifespan so there's loads of people who have been doing this for a number of years um and they might well live to like 100 and something but mm life is so miserable because you're hungry all the time Mm. and you don't have enough uh energy to to be very functional or active um so it's just a very odd concept of extending your life but extracting all the fun out of it
0: yeah and and sort of prolonging this inevitable thing that's inevitable you know like uh By put by putting making it further away, it doesn't stop it from happening. I sometimes feel like the people that are trying to prolong it as long as possible are, like, crossing their fingers and hoping that technology will save them from this inevitable thing. Yeah. But, you know, who wants to be Krang from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? It's, you <laughs> know, <laughs> running around us. Uh, this. Me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that guy. <laughs> um Yeah. Another one of your films, Songs of Eternal Praise, you don't really talk too much about your relationship to religion, but there's sort of hints of it being a little bit funny, like as an adult, looking back at some of the the kind of, I don't know whether I'm sort of jumping and maybe thinking, because I was brought up Roman Catholic and I look back at that time and I was like, I don't know, how does that affect me as a child, sort of learning about Jesus and this really horrific thing that happened and like the cruelty of people and these very graphic kind of slightly horrifying images that I could have sort of repeated. What's that kind of relationship with you? I know that you were at, at Songs of Praise as a kid. Was that something that was like part of your family life? Is that something you talk about in your film?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a, it's a pretty good observation because it, um, I did use this, uh, there's like a references to a pilgrimage in the film, which is this thing that I um, actually did always used to do right up until in recent years. <clears throat> so I'm basically, yeah, I was brought up uh, Church of England, Anglican. Uh, my mum's kind of quite religious. So we've kind of brought up in that environment. I now sort of jokingly refer to myself as an Anglican atheist because... I definitely sort of don't believe in uh in religion and god um but culturally that's sort of where i come from so the film sort of has all these references to death and resurrections and um this odd sort of disjunction between life and death and confusion between life and death and um comedy and tragedy as well um so yeah, that, that was an important element to it. My, my own kind of religious background, because I use this, um, actual bit of footage from, um, an episode of Songs of Praise where, uh, me and my family are in the background of it. And we still have this, this video recording of it, of the BBC broadcast. Um, and I guess, you know, kind of what we were just talking about, about kind of cheating Death and time and things like that. I suppose the whole that film was very much about how it was about the relationship to moving image and this disjunction between death, life and death. Because there's various I use various examples in film and TV where there's been some confusion about when people act being killed or nearly dying and actually nearly dying. And so I use the um, there's like Michael J. Fox on on set of Back to the Future Three. They were simulating him being hanged, and he. Um, but actually, the, the stunt went wrong, and he he was he, he nearly died. Um, and and I talk about the um, the example of Brandon Lee being killed on set of The Crow, and you know we, weirdly the echoes before the the whole um, Alec Baldwin incident but yeah this idea that they they finished the film of the crow uh after he died and so they um they had to kind of weirdly he he's playing somebody who gets killed in the movie comes back to life to avenge uh avenge himself um and then that's what kind of happened in real life but when when he was shot in the on set you know he was supposed to die so he just collapsed to the ground and no one realized he was actually shot. So all these kind of confusions and, yeah, kind of meta-religious, I um, suppose, references or metaphors, yeah, they all get mixed into the,
0: into the bag. Do you find that your films are a way of you deeper understanding your thoughts on something, or do you sort of have your thoughts and you try to take the viewer on that journey when you're, when you're planning your film?
1: I think the process of making it does does force me to kind of think more deeply and to kind of unify thoughts. I suppose there's some process of making threads between things, seeing, creating kind of systems. Systems about understanding. I'm a big fan of Adam Curtis, for example. I suppose he does a similar thing in in a sort of like geopolitical way. I suppose we we're talking about kind of small observations and using single examples of things that tell a story of something else like a bigger story you know a, a, a micro story say, telling a biggest, a macro story and adam curtis loves that you know he'll say meanwhile in you know the sahara desert a, a young boy picked up a stone from the river and and then 9-11 happened you know like he was <laughs> yeah. like creating um a direct link between something very small, um, changing the world. Uh, so yeah, I suppose in a way, it's, it's just systems of thought, the process of, of making links between things. Yeah, it is a way of kind of understanding the world.
0: Your work sort of, there's a lot of sort of theatrical aspects to it, whether that's sort of th- through the use of costume or... The way that you're sort of presenting an idea is 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 in a a very sort of performative way you're sort of almost you're you're a lot of the time playing a character who's sort of yourself but it's like a version of yourself which is easier for maybe the the viewers who don't know you to understand
1: it's it's a thing that i thought a lot about it's about like sincerity and irony because I, i suppose i do have a a style that is a bit um deadpan and so Yeah, we were talking about kind of wrong footing the viewer and kind of, and, and as you just said about like the characters, but they're all me and this idea of, of it's not so much alter ego, but like a performed self, like I kind of see it as a sincere way of being myself, but it's always, you know, slightly, it comes across quite ironic and, um, jokey but I kind of want to be sincere at the same time. And I'm kind of interested in that, the idea of like artifice, things that can be very artificial can be quite sincere and authentic at the same time. So I think I'm often, I'm often playing around with those ideas and how you can, I kind of did a a talk about this idea and I sort of like showed, presented other films that kind of deal with sincerity and irony. and i use the example, there was an essay written about Wes Anderson's films that this kind of highly produced artifice, artificial world that's, you know, immediately recognizable as Wes Anderson's, you know, aestheticized, you know, construction, but it doesn't mean it's not real, you know, the the idea of, you know, um, theater being that can be very phony, can be very or when you're being very ironic, it's a sort of it's it's a little card trick, isn't it? Being super ironic and super sincere at the same time.
0: It's it's British, quite British as well. Of like, mm. let's talk about some serious things, but also um, don't appear like being serious. Don't appear like you're being serious. And if you're being like like throw some sarcasm in there, keep people guessing, and then they go, "Oh, you you kind of did mean." That. And Americans don't tend, I, I'm friends with a lot of Americans and whenever I meet new Americans, it takes them a while to get used to me because I'm kind of saying, saying something, but kind of like being sarcastic or it just doesn't, doesn't cut through often. It, it I think it appears abrasive. And when you spend mm. time with Americans, I spent time with some actors at this festival and, um, we, we stayed in this house together. So, so we're in sort of very close proximity. And there was like this point at the end, and I found it so so funny. At the end of the festival, we like sat around in a circle, and then they asked everybody to go and say what was a really important thing that you took from the festival. And I just found the the whole experience really (laughs) difficult. And I was thinking afterwards, why did I find that so difficult? And it's like, well, you don't really do that in England. You don't really sort of sit around and talk about your feelings. You just sort of talk about it in another way.
1: Yeah. I think it's a really significant point. You know, we're a bit emotionally screwed up and we are we've, we're very indirect nation, you know, in terms of the way we we've learned to communicate, you know, we understand it between ourselves, but yeah, it must be very confusing yeah, Americans are direct and they will say what they mean and (laughs) we've, we've created quite a coded, um, form of communication which is fascinating. Um but yeah, I think I think I'm definitely a product of being British in that in that sense.
0: You talk about it a lot in your films, you use a lot of um things that maybe wouldn't resonate with American audiences, they might not understand the references, or at least just not know the characters involved, you know?
1: Yeah. Um, but then I, I feel
0: like I'm very much a product of sort of
1: like sort of fifty fifty-fifty british and american references
0: american culture was a massive part of childhood in the uk in the 90s
1: yeah yeah and you mentioned wrestling and that was that was huge for me wwf wrestling um and then i took that into my film work i sort of created like a sort of ultimate warrior alter ego for for a while um and again yeah it comes back back to a kind of theatricality and a kind of confusion between what's real and what's not. Because I guess wrestling is such an interesting example of that, that it's this art form that isn't quite like anything else. It's sport, it's theatre, it's Hollywood, it's fake, but it's kind of not entirely fake.
0: Yeah, they're pretending to get beaten up and then they really are hurting themselves. And then as you spoke about in your interview on Talk art, you were saying about how there's a lot of tragic ends to wrestlers' lives because they're sort of dealing with pain, with like uh, strong painkillers and opiates and stuff. So you have all of these like untimely deaths of these heroes that are kind of presented in such an over the top way. But there's not like one wrestler that's not. So it's this kind of thing that you just plug into and it's this like alternate universe where. Mm. You know, normal people just look so pathetic next to them. I remember I met around the time when, so like past the period of Ultimate Warrior, sort of the Attitude Era, I got back into wrestling. I couldn't watch wrestling when I was really young because I didn't have Sky. So I've, I think that's one of the reasons I've collected the Hasbros is because I, I never got those toys because I never really related or watched wrestling. But I always thought the toys were cool when people brought them into school. And then, um, the attitude era I got sky, and I was kind of watching it, and um got really into it, and I went and met the rock and big the big show, and I just yeah. remember seeing the big show and just thinking like i <sighs> I am inferior <laughs> I'm very, very small person <laughs> um they come from sports worlds like their their dads are wrestlers or well uh, they like the Rock he's kind of used that almost just as a stepping stone to becoming one of the most famous people in the entire in the entire world. and then you know i've I've heard I've heard the word president in the same sentence as him, President dwayne Rock Johnson. So I mean, if that's just being mentioned, it sort of tells you how how he's regarded by um by a lot of people
1: well there's always been a weird connection between um politics and, and and um or american politics and wrestling to say nothing of the fact the first time i ever heard of donald trump was, was good because of his relationship to wwf wrestling i think one of the WrestleManias was held at trump towers or something like that and he'd he would often be around As like he's this you know weird business guy mm. um and I think that there's a lot of the kind of showmanship and theatricality in, in American politics seems to come directly from from wrestling. You know, it's 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 bonkers. And I always think of I think it was John Senna, um, the first public announcement of the death of um Osama bin Laden was at a live wrestling match. And it's just very strange bit of footage you can see on on YouTube or whatever. Um, to so the crowd, are kind of is this real or not? Mm. Again, you know, this, these 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 confusions between reality and 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 theatre. Um, but yeah, very quickly then it becomes USA, USA.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, so yeah, it's like it's so American and it's so maximalist and so kind of hyped up. I think that kind of interest in using that as a subject in my work also sort of start, started like an interest in the concept of masculine masculinity and constructions around ideas of masculinity. And then it sort of evolved into like football subcultures and things like that over the time, over period of time. I suppose I'm doing it with, with this film project as well about, you know, I'm one of three, three brothers and, um, you know, the idea of, of adulthood and masculinity and,
0: um, where do you sit in this unit? You know, like not, not, that's not a question, but like you're questioning yourself, like how, how, how have I, how have I become like this? And how, why is my brother like this? And, and then it's such a sort of complicated and, and long relationship with so much history and so much, I don't know, shared experience and, and, you know, shared joy, shared hurt.
1: My parents still live in the house we grew up in and sort of ideas around sort of connections to childhood and things not changing I don't know, that, that kind of, that um tendency to want to keep things, you know, like the old days, you know. Keeping my old Hasbro uh wrestling figures, you know.
0: Are you a person that kind of holds on to things for a long time? Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I've had to try and sort of break that a bit. But yeah, I'm definitely um not someone who lets go of things. Easily.
0: I'm imagining you still have a lot of stuff in London and also you've taken a lot of things to your new home in Margate, which I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about the move and why did you ditch us? I had to downscale a <laughs>
1: lot. <laughs> Lindsay's not, doesn't sort of um, subscribe to that idea of keeping hold of old crap.
0: It's probably predictable on, in the reasons of why you wanted to move London to london uh, out of london but yeah was that a difficult move was that something that you were really sort of longing to to sort of escape london or um
1: i it wasn't like a long-term ambition i kind of never thought i would or, or could leave london somehow because it's so especially being an artist it feels so connected to you know the sort of cultural world and the art world, but, yeah, as soon as I started to kind of see that actually that it, it is possible to function outside of London, and then Margate became a really interesting, you know attractive option. and we were aware that you know quite a few people were doing that, like people people artists were moving there, and it was within proximity to London. um but yeah, it's been great, especially we moved kind of after the first uh, lockdown, so
0: three By years point, maybe but, you've been there yeah, three years coming up for
1: three years mm-hmm. um we were desperate to get out of london at that point but but yeah it's 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 so unmanageable you know it doesn't need to be said like especially for artists to be expected to on top of everything work as little as possible to do your art and rent a studio um yeah for almost all of us it's you know it's it's, it's a it's just it's impossible it's an impossible sort of conundrum yeah it's so hard to 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 do it but um yeah that was a big factor Mm -hmm. but no it's been great and there's a real kind of sense of community down here we're not moving back anytime soon
0: no yeah there's anything wrong with london i mean i'm i'm hoping to move out soonish and i'm on the very i mean i'm i'm out i'm in essex so i'm like kind of outside of london um but it's still sort of still very easy to get there but I find working from home that I don't do it so much um, especially having kids it's a lot revolved around spending time with them and one thing that I'm sort of resistant to move out of London is that access to culture the museums um, you know just being able to as that interest for my children you know grows hopefully to towards sort of culture and even things that are just fun experiences science museum there's just so many things all the time to to go and see so i'm hoping that i'm i'm still going to be in in proximity to that and you are um you're running a gallery called quench um with your partner lindsay and it was interesting to talk to you about that before because i hadn't realized that it was a non you're you're not taking commission, the artists are getting basically the best deal of all time where they get hundred percent commission and, and some help with, with setting up the show. And you step back a little bit in terms of the curation of it. Um, What were the sort of, what was the thinking behind that? Was that an ambition you had for a long time? And then how did, how did that start and how's that going?
1: Um, It started kind of, it was, it was a, a lockdown idea a pandemic idea it started as a, as a, a you know just a, a, sm- a small concept of a, we could you know use a part of some space that we might rent out as a studio we could sort of separate a chunk of it and um put on shows but it also because the pandemic was this kind of bleak time in the art world and things were being cut jobs were being lost opportunities uh, were going galleries were closing down um so yeah we just and i think certainly for for Lindsay, like a motivating factor was just the the amount of moaning there was like people were very quick to call call things out to say this you know this institution is wrong yeah people saying what was wrong with things but rather well perhaps we could try and do something that was was a better a better model or was it just a more optimistic thing we kind of it, it was nice. It felt like a, a good news story just when we announced we were doing this. The reaction just to the concept of it was was really positive, um, mm-hmm. which really encouraged us. And then we started kicked it off by doing a crowdfunder campaign, which went really well. Mm-hmm. Um so it was great. Yeah, there was a lot of goodwill and um yeah thankfully it's 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 kind of worked out. It it grew because we we the initial space that we were going to move into fell through which was going to be quite modest and then we we found this quite quite large space that was a gallery that was not being used in margate and you know we got a it's a it's a, it's a really good deal we're paying you know like we couldn't dream of doing what we do what we're doing here in london and it's it's so sad you know so many artist run spaces have closed down now in london or are struggling to kind of keep Afloat, so yeah, we were able to do that here, which is great, and it's it's worked we, like in the sense of we've, we've been running for two and a half years, two and a bit. Yeah, lost track of how many shows we've done, but it's you know it's been really amazing to work with so many artists. They're mostly emerging, younger artists, um or artists that we admire, artists that we'd like to see do shows, um, and to be able to help them try and support support some community of artists is very special. It's it's really great. We've got arts council funding for the last couple of years, as well as the the separate uh, fundraising we do. Lindsay is amazing. She she does editions of her own work and um, it's donated. And the artists that we work with is one thing. That's the one thing that we do ask um, in return is is editions uh, from them or donations from them to help the next sort of wave of of artists uh, receive. Basically, like a fee or a bursary for the shows that they do. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a lot of work, and it was more work than we kind of maybe thought it would be or intended it to be. But um, yeah, it's been a great adventure. You know,
0: yeah, in terms of of looking from afar, you, you've kind of you've done some something really special. I think um, the reception from from the existing Margate community seems to be extremely positive. So you're obviously doing something very good i mean like you're doing something right you're doing you're 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 doing it for the right reasons as well which um i think a lot of well, younger like, artists sorry go on
1: what's what's nice is yeah, you know, like opposite to london where there is yeah infinite choice about what what to see and um uh, and you know what you could possibly do in a, in a weekend or whatever you know i say margate's become a good uh art destination there's just enough things to do in a day. Mm-hmm. You know, there's galleries like Carl Friedman and the 10 the ter- Temporary, and then a handful of more independent galleries. So yeah, if you're coming down to Margate, you tend to kind of see the shows. So like footfall is decent, um, all in all, um, and it's a nice town to visit anyway. So we get kind of, we, you get a captive audience, that's what I mean, you know, if, for people coming down. Um, and you know, and it's, and it's growing because since we've opened up, you know, there are other smaller galleries, especially in the Cliftonville, um, side of town. Um, so yeah, and it does feel like a community. It's really, um, it's quite supportive. It's quite warm. I guess, you know, that kind of thing, that's a time in my life. I'm kind of quite happy to embrace that. Um, yeah, it's just sort of alternative because I mean, the art world in London isn't, isn't warm. It's great. Um, but people are it's so it's so hard. It's so competitive that people don't really have the space to be um as supportive to each other as they would be in other other situations. you know
0: when you talk about sort of fame and when you talk about sort of like the way that fame is presented is sort of presented in this perfect way, there is this thing with comedians that they say like you kind of have to be a bit messed up or like which one of your parents was not nice to you' that made you be a comedian this kind of this running joke with comedians and sort of more stuff that's happened i think i think the um recent things with russell brand made me think about whether fame and the people that get to that higher echelon of fame are are really broken in a similar way that the comedians are you know like presenting yourself as being completely uh perfect all the time must be extremely difficult um and then also this pressure to have yourself all worked out. And then, you know, in the background, you've got a drug addiction or in the background, you've got something really traumatic that you're really struggling to deal with, but you've got to turn up and smile. I'm interested in terms of like, you know, what your th- thoughts are of people that are like hungry for fame.
1: I know, it, I know what you're saying. because I, I do think the same thing that to, to I think to be really famous must be so psychologically... Um, disorientating when you you know when you go in a room and everyone knows who you are well you're always going to be the the story in that person's day you know that oh my god i met so and so like what the hell does that feel like and i do think of particularly like in terms of reality tv to want that and to really kind of desire it you must be a sl- slightly disturbed or, or or unstable somehow or imbalanced Uh, I think about it with, with politics a lot, the, that desire to kind of want to be at that top level of politics, it's pretty brutal. I mean, um, no one would want to be, most normal people wouldn't want to be Rishi Sunak in the sense of you're just getting, just, just on, on a level of everyone taking the piss out of you all the time, you know, just what the, the level of thick skin that you'd have to have is quite, um it's quite extreme and other uh, people say, you know, it's the people who rise to the top that you need to be worried about because of that the power and the fame that comes with power, the power that comes with fame, sorry, is so sort of inextricably linked, you know, in terms of politics. Um, and that we shouldn't really, yeah, we should always be suspicious of people who want that job, but we need that. We need people. We need political leaders um so what do you do i don't know um but i do yeah i do think how does anyone survive that level of scrutiny and intense attention um but yeah and then i did do a film about kind of the dark side of fame i suppose like it was basically about the the old idea of separating art from the artist And so it was called. You know nothing of my work, which comes from a Woody Allen film, and Woody Allen was a kind of a a a rolling subject or motif in the film, partly because I suppose he's been an influence and an inspiration to me as an artist, or as yeah, as a as a figure. I've always been a big fan of his in the past. Are we still allowed to like the work of people who are um, horrible um, or bad bad people? Um, and that's something that's, you know, it's been so prescient over the last, well, nearly 10 years, I suppose, of the last, it's becoming a sort of defining issue of our time, I suppose, the idea, it's so linked to the idea of cancel culture.
0: It's, it's extremely complicated and it's, and it doesn't seem to have a set, like a a set set of rules, like a consistent set of rules. Because it sort of works for one person and it doesn't for another. You spoke about this on on your interview where you were talking about someone like Michael Jackson. You'll still hear their music. You're not going to hear R. Kelly, but the, the 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 surrounding stories that have emerged are, are quite sort of on the same page anyway. The film that you're referring to speaks about certain figures from art, certain certain. Uh, well, Pablo Picasso, for example, are we ever are we are we allowed to kind of cancel him? I don't think it's possible to cancel Pablo Picasso.
1: Well, I think when it when the whole Michael Jackson thing came out when Finding Neverland was released, you thought, Well, these aren't these these aren't peripheral figures, you know, he was the most famous man on the planet mm. for me growing up in my, you know, in our generation. Um and so you can't yeah you can't kind of erase those legacies i suppose it's that it's that discomfort that i, that I guess you referred to earlier like this kind of being drawn to something that's really uh, um inconvenient
0: mm-hmm.
1: um like it, some things you can brush under the carpet because it's just like we don't want to think about you and your horrible things you've done um i suppose the example that i used in in the film uh was was that of lost profits and that's how the the kind of the story of like how i ended up kind of with this idea to make a film about this hmm. did start with me being in a charity shop and then i would find old secondhand lost profits cds and this sort of weird sort of sense of panic like Shit. shit do i do i say something to the you know shopkeeper um like because they're just um because it was so horrible but but they were of a certain size that could be
0: moved away sort of erased yeah mm, yeah
1: um they hadn't made a you know a seismic shift in in the cultural landscape to that extent uh but you know michael jackson um shit it's it's there everywhere and then the idea in the film is just the more i look the more i see um these these the kind of influence of these particular people uh, or the imprint that they've made in the world and mm-hmm. so it, one way or another we have to kind of um live with it or work out how we're going to live with it how we're going to move forward and um and that's what i'm interested in because it's not it's not realistic to kind of erase Pablo Picasso it just isn't
0: celebrating his genius should come with the conversation of, you know, of, of the, the bad things, the, the treatment of women and stuff. So I think, I think it's that thing of like, we don't like nuance. We don't like, we don't, we don't have time for it. You know, 15 second TikTok videos are not long enough to get into nuance. You need to be pretty brash with your, uh, with your opinion and hopefully, uh, It divides enough people to get them to comment
1: yeah and that's what's weird and and very modern this this lack of nuance this lack of time or space to to sort of hold kind of complicated thoughts in your head um or slightly kind of contradictory thoughts so it's 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 an odd thing that we're sort of choosing to do out of of, out of some sort of public morality fear um And so we, we know, we know we're doing this, but we've got to kind of play along in a way. Um, but yeah, I suppose it's the job of artists to, 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 you know, to really kind of unpick things and actually, um, yeah, find, you know, be uncomfortable.
0: I think it's an easy decision to throw things away. It's a necessary decision to throw things away sometimes, but it's sort of an easier decision. And a lot of the time I think comes from a place of sort of projecting to the world, having everything worked out and being able to make a decision. There's a lot of sort of sometimes virtue signaling going on. In the case of the recent Russell Brand documentary, the reaction I had that I tried to pay attention to was my feeling of um, sort of knowing something was up and knowing that there was something not quite right and tuning out. I mean, not quite right. It's quite obvious in recent times. but. When he had the, the Paxman interview, I was very taken by his uh passion, um, what seemed to be very much the fight of the everyday man. And I was very like hooked by his sort of charisma and the way he was able to sort of disarm people in interviews. Looking back on some of those interviews, it was sort of wholly inappropriate at times, but he's just and he and he was very good at it, or is very good at sort of saying. I'm this, I'm like this, but also I'm just a guy from Essex. I'm just a guy from Essex. And it's like, you're not really that just a guy from Essex anymore. You are you are somewhere someone else and you do have a lot of responsibility and you have to take responsibility on how your, you know, your words and, and things affect people. You can't just be like,
1: uh,
0: pay attention to it sometimes and then sometimes not. But yeah, personally, I just felt very like, you know, physically kind of, Angry, and I guess there was a lot of projection in that because you know I trusted him. I trusted. I, I was taken in by you in a, in the way that a lot of people would would have been and still are. And I just feel like you know, consider you know, like again another another hero, another kind of oh, hero is a big word, but like I read um, Basquiat's, who, who who sort of was a big art hero of mine, and I read the the his um his girlfriend at the times memoirs and he was really horrible he was like really consistently horrible and selfish and you know again that thing of of hunger for fame and and the type of person that that is and it's something that that from watching your work and and each film kind of really talks about a different a different thing there are links but just um you know it gets me thinking. I, I was, after watching your work, was just really thinking about it. I, this is probably the biggest compliment you can have as an artist. But I was thinking about it. Oh, the next day, I watched like a few of them. And then the next day, I watched um, the one where you talk about uh, your relationship to alcohol, which I found really fascinating. Obviously, British culture is so res- revolved around it but um personally i've had like to really question you know blackouts you know that feeling of fear and anxiousness because you can't remember something very normalized you know very very normalized in, in especially sort of when when you're in a, your 20s and 30s in in living in england and london but yeah i like the way that your work really pushes people to think about their own personal relationships and the way that you do this a lot Sorry to to waffle on, um, is by being so vulnerable, being so honest about your own relationship to this thing that fascinates you or that you're sort of self-reflecting on. There's a lot of bravery in that. And then you give the bravery to the viewer of like, oh, maybe I should be brave enough to tackle that really uncomfortable thing that I should think about that relationship that I've got with alcohol. I should think about why I'm not comfortable until I have two drinks. Because that that is not really normal. It's not kind of normal, but it is normalised. But it sh- I shouldn't I shouldn't need alcohol to feel like I can talk to somebody I don't know at a networking event. But I you know it certainly does. <laughs> it certainly helps.
1: Yeah, well, that's part of um, Lindsay's Lindsey Mendix show. That's on up, up in Edinburgh at the moment. shit faced um. And so we worked together on on that film project, but yeah, we do share because we talk about work and we're both very much in our work. So we'd make sort of a different work extensively, but I think that's how we, we kind of bonded in that way that we both, we both want to provoke conversations, I suppose, you know, we want anyone to be able to, to engage with our work you know we're not into kind of like massive understatement um we kind of we want we want real content and we want people to to feel that and recognize what what we're trying to say and yeah Lindsay's show was brilliant because it does talk about what's what's very apparent in so many people's lives you know i think the reaction to to it was was amazing that so it's essentially a still kind of taboo you know our general relationship to alcohol and it's often not something that is a subject in a, an art exhibition yeah we both kind of have that uh, um odd um compulsion to to be very honest or kind of just just it's just how we kind of process we both we both obsess about things and then put ourselves very much as that conduit of trying to say something Trying to sort of make sense of it
0: and discover the truth by you know not judging yourself and putting it on the line, you know.
1: I mean, like this film I'm making at the moment. i kind of up against it in terms of getting it finished, but I don't, I don't know what it's about, and I'm kind of saying that in the film. Like, what? Why am I making a film about my family, about a bunch of stuff that happened? And it's hard. It's a bit like a lot of writers kind of have that like writing a memoir or something i feel you know i was very nervous about doing it because of involving my family or talking about whether that's whether it's completely my um place to be able to talk about other people in the family who might not want to want that being talked about but yeah at the same time i feel like I've, i've kind of got to do this at this time in my life now it's been building and stuff. You know, the more honest you are, the more the more it relates to people, the more it connects to other people, or the, the more per- personal you are. And yeah, that's what most art is about, surely. You know, about communication.
0: Yeah. Is it uncomfortable to uh, to be so vulnerable?
1: Um. Yeah. Yeah. I, I the last show I did. Which was called um we put the unction into erectile dysfunction uh got got quite personal in a way I'm sure you can't imagine, but i really I, I never felt so panicked on the day of the opening i thought why why the hell what have i done would i would I do this by <laughs> putting this out into the world like
0: yeah
1: um a, absolute sense of terror and regret but um it's part, it's part of an ongoing thing of like whatever it is I'm doing as an artist, I guess it's all kind of connected. Um, and one project leads to another and hopefully makes sense as a whole. You
0: know. Yeah, definitely does as a body of work. I think with that particular, uh, exhibition, um, and the, the film that was kind of at the centerpiece of that, it felt like it wasn't just about erectile dysfunction it was about masculinity and the pressures of i mean it it, it's quite obviously about the pressures that, that that society puts on on men there's also like then a comedic aspect to it and then also sort of horror aspect to it and um this this kind of you know building heartbeat of a of a sort of sound backing soundtrack um And this these this rhyming um, song, I guess that you've kind of written and performed. I found it um, compelling. Like I, I that was one of the films where I just thought about it the next day, and the visuals are very sort of striking and kind of embedded (laughs) in my head. Um, And you take the costume from. It's a mint advert, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's a Tribor Soft Mints. This a character called Mr. Soft.
0: For anyone that hasn't seen, it's like a very like a, a pillowy, a pillowy man. Um and this costume of a pillowy man. It's it's an amazing work. I really I encourage everyone to I think it's like um if they want a, an introduction to your work, just jump straight into that. And you're they're gonna, I feel wanna watch everything you've made. It's just really, it's a really, really amazing work. Um so the work that you're working on uh, at the moment, Badly Drawn Boys, uh, mm-hmm. is for uh, a show, I think, that you've got coming up. Do you have a date set in mind for for all of it that? It
1: will be at Quench uh, in Margate, and it will open on the 6th of October, and it's a, um, a duo show. It's a collaboration between me and uh, Finbar Ward, who we're kind of working separately but in a unified way or a kind of exchanging kind of way and yeah the the show as a whole is we think it's going to be called interiority complex the starting point for him was about kind of homes and den building and kind of how that kind of relates to the family so we both kind of had this starting point of the family as a sort of motif um yeah his work is more sculptural and um yeah check it out (laughs) Come to Margate.
0: Yeah, I really want to. It's been on my list for a long time. Um, Just having children is just... uh, They weren't at the age where you could go to the beach and not be in a panic. I actually went to Folkestone for the first time to the beach with them last summer. Not this summer gone, but the last summer. And it was the first time where I lost sight of my child for, you know, like more than a minute. Me yeah. and my partner. We we spoke, and then he was here, and then I spoke to her, probably for about fifteen seconds, and I looked around and he wasn't there, and I said, "Where's where, where is he? Where is he?" And it was just that bit from like Baywatch where everything gets blurry and everyone's <laughs> just like really loud, and and I was just like, "Oh my gosh!" And he was wearing like really like hard to notice like Navy shorts or something, you know, like, and then you look yeah. around and like everyone's wearing Navy. <laughs> it was horrible, really Please. horrible. And we just ran towards the sea. Like that was where he would definitely <clears> go. Um, And then, yeah, found him a few meters away, but it was really busy. And, I don't know. Oh dear. I need to put yeah. kids on, on leashes. Am I right? alright. <laughs> <laughs> But no, pages, just right. Yeah, exactly. No, I was so <laughs> so so scared. Um, so yeah, now he's got like, even though we haven't been back to the beach since, he's got two pairs of neon, like neon orange and neon green <laughs> uh, shorts for the next time he loves we neon. go. Yeah, he's really big into neon. I don't know why he's you know he's eighteen and he's painting. I don't know why. I just love these neon colours. Um, I'm not sure if I like explained your work very well. I felt like you did um, to somebody that hasn't seen it.
1: It's always awkward to describe your work as funny because it's sort of like, oh, it's funny, are you?
0: Oh, uh, yeah. On, tell tell us, us a joke. A joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, that it is really funny. I found myself laughing. It's that kind of laugh where you're laughing, you laugh, and then you laugh more because it's so, so absurd. <laughs> And then you can't stop laughing because you're like laughing at your fact that you're laughing at something that you're really not sure whether you should be laughing at or not. The the use of music in your work, uh, you've spoken about it, and you spoke about Jeffrey Lewis, an artist that we're both very very fond of, and you you introduced me to Jeffrey Lewis. Yeah, he's a big
1: big influence on me, and this kind of interest in kind of wordplay and rhyming couplets and things that I've that I've sort of grown into. I think a lot of it's come from my, um, interest in, in his work and kind of trying to, trying to kind of emulate that sort of profound, funny, sad thing that he often does so Mm. brilliantly. And, um, and it all started with like the song called the the Chelsea Hotel or a sex song, Mm -hmm. which is, which is very similar to what I do in the sense of like a, a weird observation that ends up being like a a 9 minute song about an opportunity to get off with someone that never really happened. He kind of like positions himself as a as a sort of hapless dork kind of thing a lot of the time. Like I kind of like he's quite like he plays with a sort of beta um beta man persona a little mm. bit. Yeah. Like he kind of it's one of the few people to really explore that 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 kind of concept of the sort of anti-alpha male um, I'm interested in we tr- we, I tried to um, collaborate with him on the you know nothing of my work I tried to reach out and um, see if there's a way. there was a way to work to, and it nearly happened um, but it was just too complicated to try and grab him whilst he was basically on a whistle stop tour um the uk it just wasn't wasn't practical
0: that would be amazing i'd love to see that
1: <laughs> his his influence is, is is you know there very very apparent in the in the film and yeah anyone who doesn't know his work check check him out um but yeah the the, the times that we've bumped into each other over the years is usually a, a jeffrey lewis gig yeah which is interesting so yeah we kind of have that in common the idea of like the beta male i think I had this idea that it uh, it sort of starts with Woody Allen and kind of this idea that there's a lineage between him and Woody Allen and maybe myself. And the, the idea of we could sort of be in conversation with each other, talking about Woody Allen kind of thing, um, about, about how, how we deal with his, you know, artistic legacy. That was, that was the idea around that. But yeah, I, music I've always been obsessed with and, um, one way or another it's it's over the years it became more and more a stronger and stronger feature of the work until now I'm kind of you like create i created a musical yes um for example um or just you know the, uh, working with musicians and things now which is great uh, kind of self-indulgent sure but uh you know it's fun
0: yeah i've enjoyed diving into your work i've seen maybe four films five films and i'm really looking forward to seeing the new work but yeah thank you so much for your time um thank you dan you're welcome yeah no i really appreciate you coming on and um if uh if anybody wanted to check your work out what would be the best way of them seeing some work is it to go through your social media or website uh,
1: social media yeah guy j oliver on instagram or uh yeah guy is my website.
0: Thank you very much, Guy, for taking the time. I hope to catch up with you soon.
1: Thank you for having me, Dan. And uh, take care.
0: Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to follow our guests on whichever social media platform you enjoy using most. Links are in the usual places. Links to all my social media accounts can also be found at the bottom of every single page over on my website at danielcrosson.com. The best way to support this podcast is to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Please leave a review and even consider sharing the podcast with a friend. Special thanks goes to Low Fox for producing the music for the podcast. Thank you very much again for listening. See you next time. Take care.